This is a podcast about sound, how it impacts your life and the people who are creating the sound of the future. Welcome to Powered by Audio, supported by EPOS. Based on pioneering audio technology, EPOS strives to unleash human potential by perfecting audio experiences. Learn more at eposaudio.com. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. In this episode, listening and learning, the sound of education. Intelligence has always set humans apart from other species, but the ways we teach each other have been changing. Even before the pandemic, research and markets reported that the remote education industry was on track to be $350 billion by 2025. Will online classes replace the classroom? What role does good audio play in education? Luckily, our first guest has served as an advisor to five New York City mayors and counting. Dr. Arlene Bronzaft is the chairperson of the Noise Committee of GrowNYC.org. Her groundbreaking research in the 70s about noise in the classroom has been cited by educators ever since. Arlene, it's such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to Powered by Audio. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. So let's start with that original landmark research that I was talking about. I'd love to hear, how did that come out? What did you find? Well, I'm a college professor, and I was teaching a class in environmental psychology at Lehman College. And of course, I was talking about noise. And at the end of the class, a student of mine came up, and she said, Dr. Bronsaft, my child goes to a school next to an elevated train track in Upper Manhattan. And the children can't learn. The train is disrupting their learning and the teachers can't teach. And we're going to sue the city of New York. I said, hold it. My husband's an attorney. You're going to have to prove that the children's learning was actually disrupted and that they weren't doing as well in class. You need the data. So she said, okay, help us. So I went to the principal of the school, asked if I could look at the reading scores of children's whose classes were adjacent to the train tracks and compare them with the scores on the other side of the building. Perfect experiment for a psychologist. And when we looked at the reading scores by the sixth grade, the children were nearly a year behind in reading. I published the paper, but the parent did not ask me to do a study and publish a paper. She asked me to help the children. So I went to the Transit Authority in New York City learned they had a new procedure to quiet the tracks, asked if they would choose that school to test out the procedure, and went to the Board of Ed and got acoustical ceilings for the classroom. Now, you don't have to be a New Yorker to know. You don't get two agencies like this to say, oh, yes, Dr. Bronzaft, we're going to do exactly what you ask us. No, it's a miracle. It is, it is a major miracle. <laughs> you and I are on the same wavelength. That's what I said, miracle. Now they put in the two procedures. They didn't say, Dr. Bronzaf, do another study. That's happening all over. Whenever you find something, oh, do another study, more research. They acted. And then a public official said, please go back and see if the children did better. Well, I want you to guess, Randy, do you think they did better? So now it was quieter. I compared both sides again. And the children on both sides, near the tracks and on the quieter side, were both reading at the same level. These two studies are the landmark studies in the field. But it went beyond that. 
The transit authority said they would quiet the tracks near the 54 schools that were similarly affected. But I said people live near the tracks as well. And so they would use that procedure to quiet the tracks throughout the city of New York. And when a few other studies were done that show that noise does intrude on children's learning, which when I did the study, my daughter was eight years old and she never understood why her mother had to prove something that was so obvious. Mommy, they can't learn in a noisy classroom. But anyhow, years later, the Federal Aviation Administration spent several hundred million dollars to quiet schools across the country that are impacted by aircraft noise. And to show that that was worth doing, they put together a committee on which I served at the National Academy of Sciences to oversee a study that when you quiet schools down, it benefits children. To which my then eight-year-old would have said, mommy, isn't that obvious? She now says, mother, that you still have to talk about this and there's still schools subjected to the noise. I don't think people have listened to you, mom. And to that, I say, please listen to me. Noise disrupts learning in the home, in the classroom. And do it, please, to help our children and to make my daughter feel proud of her mother. Arlene, I I actually got physical goosebumps when you said that the, the reading level of the children improved. You had such an impact on those children's entire lives. It's amazing. I'm curious, you know, as you started to do your research about focus and listening and noise, did you end up changing your own style of teaching? You know, it's interesting. Let me tell you, I do not use PowerPoint. I want people to use their ears to listen to me. I also believe that children, when they're in classrooms, should learn how to listen to the teacher. When you have PowerPoints, I'm not saying they can't be used at times, but then people focus on the PowerPoints. They're not listening to the speaker. And so when I give lectures, I say, listen to me. Because when you're listening, you're beginning to take in what I've said. You could take notes. But I think you will also do better at school. So I do focus on the importance of listening when people are talking. By the way, that should be true when you engage in a conversation with someone. You should listen to what the other person says. May I add that I've written a book called Top of the Class, which does address the issue of how children could benefit from a home that is quieter. But the book is really the study of high academic achievers. And what I wanted to find out is if you do well at school, if you're a good student, how does this benefit you for the rest of your life? And the skills you acquire at school, you come to class, you listen to what the teacher's talking about, you pay attention, you go home, you study. These are the same skills you need to do well in the workplace. It's the same for marriage, by the way. It's the same for rearing children. And then what I discovered, since many of my subjects were older, and I spoke to a number of them personally, their later years were better. So children need quieter environments, but do tune in with your ears, which many more people are doing now during the pandemic, by the way. You listen to what others say. You pay attention. 
And I think you will find your interactions with others will improve. And as students, I think you'll do better in class. Arlene, I love what you're saying so much. And I, I'm having two reactions as you're saying it. The first is that's that's why I love being a radio and podcast host so much is it's really the only time that I get to just indulge myself in listening to amazing people like you. But I, I'm also thinking I grew up in a very noisy household. I'm one of four kids and my dad's dental office was inside our house. And I'm just sitting here thinking, gosh, maybe the Zuckerberg family would have actually achieved something in this world if only it had been a little quieter. <laughs> no, I think, I think, you know what I think you probably did? You probably did find a quieter nook. Think about it. Because you're now saying your household was noisy. You were aware of it. What did you do when you had to study? I definitely was like in my room finding places away, even as an adult, in order to focus, I need to turn on music and turn on TV and and all of these things. (laughs) All right, let me talk about music. You didn't realize this was going to be a personal therapy session also, Arlene. (laughs) Well, you, you went to what school? I graduated from Harvard. All right, my daughter went to Stanford Law. So both of you have pretty good academic careers. And guess how she did her homework? She listened to music. If it got too loud or intrusive, you're in control. You could turn it off. So while she's listening to her music, the people upstairs start banging. And she runs out of her room. Mom, stop that noise. Remember, that's noise. But music, those are beautiful sounds. Many people use music to study. If you were listening to that music and someone started banging, you'd be pretty upset. Music is soothing. I walk along the river. I like to hear the birds. I like to hear the waves. But if we allow the noises to overtake those, then not only, and remember, noise is deleterious to health, not just learning. Cardiovascular disorders have been linked to aircraft noise. But there are so many good sounds. So as long as you're doing your homework, and you're listening to your own music, you're going to do very well. So Arlene, you've written several books. One that really caught my attention, your children's book, Listen to the Raindrops. And I know you have a a really interesting story about how children reacted to that. It's your daughter who's 18 months old? Yes, I have have two older sons and then an 18-month-old daughter. Six and 10. Okay, the six-year-old, I have to get a copy of Listen to the Raindrops for you. The book deals with the beauty of the good sounds and the harmful effects of the bad sounds. And it tells the story from the point of view of a mouse. And it's all in rhyme. The book is for about first and second graders. And I read the book to them and we talk about noise. At first, I thought that children would probably get bored, but instead... I had to ask the teacher to please let me go after an hour because the children told me their stories. I have my sister. She plays the music so loud. I can't study. What can I do? So the children began to tell stories to me. But when I started reading the book, when I published the book, I got thank you notes from children. And one of the most beautiful thank you notes came from this class where the children wrote rhymes about sound. They were so beautiful that I think they could have written the books instead of me. 
So what happened is that the children not only told me about their problems with noise, but were able, after they heard the book, to write little verses that dealt with sound, and they were all in rhyme. And this was such a joy that I had children writing rhymes about sound. Is it possible to hear any of those rhymes? I can walk into another room. Yes? Oh, sure. Okay, let me try and do it. That would be awesome. Uh, Okay, you're okay now? Are we all together? (laughs) Yay. Now, remember, my book is in rhyme. So let me just say, listen how imaginative these children became about sound. Hammers go smash, smash. Fish go splash, splash. Feet go tap, tap. Hands go clap, clap. Swords go slash, slash, slash. Swimmers go splash, splash, splash. The frog goes ribbit, ribbit. And the dancer goes pivot, pivot. Is that wonderful? I don't think I ever would have thought in my life to rhyme ribbit with pivot. And now that's my new favorite rhyme. And this was such a joy that I had children writing rhymes about sound. As a New York City uh, mom and resident, I thank you deeply for all your work. Thank you. I want to dive into one thing you were saying because, you know, I'm one of many moms right now who have found themselves with uh, kids doing remote learning. My daughter as well. It's a lot harder to control the noise atmosphere in a household with learning when you have a baby crying and adults trying to have meetings and things like that. Do you have any thoughts or advice for parents who are, you know, just trying to make it work for a few more months? (laughs) I think it's very difficult. My daughter, same thing. My grandson is home. He's in 10th grade. It's remote learning. People are working at home. So the neighbor upstairs three-year-old used to run along the floor at one, two in the afternoon. And now I get it because I do serve as an advisor to the mayor. People in New York City call me on noise problems. So I'm now asked to deal with a mother who was very conscientious. Her children didn't run across the floor at five to cope with that now. And I say to the parents, the one thing they have to start to do is find a little quiet time for themselves. I think children can understand much more than we give them credit for. So I know it's difficult for the parents. I just can't imagine how much they have to cope with. So try to explain to the children, they understand, and find some quiet time for yourself. It's so wonderful. Arlene, you obviously care so much about audio and education, and even more so, it's very obvious to me that you care deeply about children. It's an honor to have you join us on Powered by Audio. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Powered by Audio is proudly supported by EPOS. EPOS has become the global audio partner of the Aston Martin Cognizant Formula One team. World-class communication tools are vital for top performance in Formula One racing and in your business. With clear sound and innovative voice enhancement technologies, EPOS is unleashing human potential wherever success matters. Find out more at epasaudio.com. As Vice Provost for Graduate and Professional Studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, Dr. Stephen Tello not only teaches college students, he teaches teachers, helping them develop new ways to educate. 
whether instructors and students are physically in the same room together or linked electronically, audio plays a huge role in education. Welcome, Dr. Tello. May I call you Stephen today? Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start at the beginning. I'm very curious, why did you decide to get into the field of online education? (laughs) Well, that's a, a funny story. I started at the university back in 1996. The internet was still relatively new. I was working with multimedia and technology. And initially, they hired me to do outreach for their multimedia certificate program, which was all in a classroom. I had a colleague who was just using HTML code, was putting courses online at UMass Dartmouth. And so he showed me how to do it. I was always fascinated by the uh, the use of technology to help people with disabilities. I had worked in that field for about six years before I came into higher ed. So I'm looking at technology and, and uh, I'm seeing what we could do. And so I went in and I saw my boss, uh, Dean Jackie Maloney. She's now chancellor of the university. And I said to her, I said, hey, do you think we could try doing this? And she looked at me, and at the time, the university system was investing very much in two-way picture-tell compressed video, but it was very expensive. And I told her, you know, we can do this almost at no cost back then. We take the code, we put it up there. So she said, yeah, let's try it. And uh, we put on six courses, all technology, like Unix courses, so that if there were any problems, the technology geeks would not be freaked out by it. And they were a success. The students loved it. Even though the servers crashed and things went down over the weekend, they loved the access it provided. So from there, we just started to scale up. We started that in 96. By 97, we had a full certificate online. By 98, 99, we had our first associates and then bachelor's degree. And it just kept growing. The more material we put up there, the more students embraced it. And then we brought the faculty along and the rest is history. So exciting, like a, like a true startup. We were just talking to an educator before you about how she creates engagement with younger students. I'm curious, using audio to engage older students, my mind immediately goes to like the teacher in Ferris Bueller or like the droning teacher in the Peanuts cartoon, um, especially with online. How do you use audio to really engage older students? We urge people to use audio to add personality. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, lecture notes, PowerPoint slides, all those things can be posted online and people can take them with them. But then audio helps add personality. I love this focus on personality. It's really resonating with me a lot. I'm curious what you found teaching strategies for teaching online and how is it different from teaching in a classroom? I've done both. And it's interesting because you connect with um, students who might not be able to get to classes, to campus. It's exciting from that perspective. But it is a bit challenging because in the classroom, you get to perform. You see, I wave my hands around. Just in our conversation, I'm very animated. It's harder to do that in an online class because often you have to prepare all the material ahead of time. You're preparing your lecture notes. You're preparing assignments. There's less room for uh, the serendipitous comment and such. The biggest complaint I think online faculty have is when they don't have that opportunity to engage. So you really have to think about how you're going to do it. So when you're looking at that that slide presentation of the set of lecture notes, you want to think, okay, uh, maybe I can bring in some audio here and I can bring in some images here. And in some ways, you do a lot of work ahead of time. A good class really isn't a spontaneous class. A good class takes a lot of preparation. So, Stephen, what advice would you give to teachers who are kind of scrambling still to catch up with the demand in online education or who are still back in school or have a hybrid mix of students who are in the classroom and in online learning? What are your thoughts? 
So there have been several um, articles written in national publications like the Chronicle of Higher Ed and such that saying, what you all have just experienced is not really quality online learning, right? You all were thrown into this real quickly and we asked you to make the best of it and you were troopers, you did, right? You made the very best of it. And some of you really excelled in this. But as we move on, we need to be thinking about the quality of what we do, how we can sustain it. This idea that you can be in one room with 20 kids and then you've got another 20 kids on a video camera behind you and you're trying to keep them connected, we can't sustain that. Teachers in classrooms and schools can't sustain that at the K through 12 or at the higher ed level. So it really is about that structure, right? Think about that online course as you're producing a quality program, right? It's your chance to apply for the Academy Awards and you want to bring in the elements into that program, the audio, the video, the sound, and the knowledge that you as a faculty member have and the teaching experience. It's like putting on a show. You need to to rehearse a little bit. So Stephen, I'm assuming that uh, when you're thinking about the wide breadth of teachers out there doing online courses, that each teacher has a different setup. They have different audio equipment. They have different microphones. So what is that like for the students on the other end that need to kind of adjust or, or get used to different varying quality? It's something that when we're working with faculty in the development process, and if anyone who teaches in our fully online program, they have to go through training ahead of time. And so that gives us an opportunity to help them think about the equipment, the tone, the pace of their presentation, and also uh, the personality that they bring. So if you have a heavy Boston accent, I refer to my accent as a Boston truck driver's accent. It comes across strong. It adds character, right? And it adds personality. And so we encourage people to bring that personality into those recordings. They may be annotating PowerPoint slides. They may be doing an audio lecture. But bring that in there and work with it. And then it helps the student to start to identify with you and the course. When they walk away, They'll not only remember the content, but they'll help, it'll help them to remember that professor who they may never actually meet in person. Well, I love your accent, and I want to take every course that you ever teach. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it takes time to build a quality online course. Your first experience is never good. Even faculty who have gone through our training, we say to them, the first semester is the roughest. You're going to get a product up there. And then that product's going to evolve and you're going to learn things this semester. And we want you to do that and we want you to change it and we want you to make it a better product. So that's my advice is think about this as the, uh, the minimal product. This is the product we had to get out the door. And now we're going to rebuild it and redesign it and add to it and refine it. It'll just get better and better. It's like a tech startup. Just get it out there and then uh, keep iterating. MVP, minimal viable product. That's right. Yes. All right, so that's the teacher perspective. What about for students? Uh, what do you advise students to do to get the most out of an online learning experience? My MBA, I actually earned online from UMass Amherst. So I got to do it as a student as well as an instructor, which was kind of fun. So recommendations, I, one thing I've, I've mentioned is this, this need to create time every week. So you have to be realistic about how much time it takes to do it. And you have to set aside that time. I think the other piece is making sure you have equipment that'll work because there's nothing more frustrating than having technology, a computer that's slow or an internet connection that's too slow. The third piece is to get to know your professor and the other students in your class. I was in a class in my MBA with a submarine commander who was traveling under the Arctic Circle. It was such, in fact, at the end of the class, he sent me a nice picture of the submarine in a little folder and such. And um, that's he was, like, he was literally on the submarine taking the class. He was, he was. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And wow. they would surface at certain times and he would log, and we were doing group work. 
the other thing you need as a student is you do need patience, right? Because in a classroom, you used to throwing up your hand and waving it and getting the person's attention. Well, in an online course with email and systems, discussion forums, it may take a day or two. You're not going to get that immediate gratification that you get in the classroom. So it's also about setting your expectations as a student. For sure, that's has now become my new life goal is to take an online course with someone from a submarine and in some capacity. That is, I mean, really, it, it illustrates the miracle of technology. I'm curious about distractions online. I mean, distractions are definitely a problem in the classroom, probably even more so online with all of the other things competing for people's attention. So I'm curious how, how you found that distractions can be minimized and it, does audio good quality audio play any kind of a factor in that? When I talked to students and faculty about this, I said, you know, online education provides great access and great flexibility, but also brings responsibility with it. And that means that you need to set aside time in your life and you need to have a quiet place where you can do this. And of course, the whole world is learning this now, now that we flip to Zoom Classroom. In our program, we don't just open up a course for the whole semester and people just rush through it. We chunk it out and we introduce it uh, weekly or bi-weekly. And there are certain themes or, or sessions or topics. And so at some point, the students certainly want to get done the class. But if a professor's done a nice job of integrating audio into there, they want to get in there. They want to hear the voice. And even though it may not be a real-time conversation, they feel like they get to know the person. You mentioned that you started your career and your fascination with online education, working with students with disabilities. So I'm interested in your thoughts about online education for the visually impaired and, and some of the, the new features and advances that are happening there. Yeah. So I worked in the disability field and we did a lot of work looking at how technology could help people with disabilities live more independent lives. Back in those early days, there was technology there, but it wasn't making its way into the college. And in fact, when I came to campus, there were still buildings that weren't handicap accessible. It was terrible. Those things have changed. Colleges have learned and they've adapted. And in the online space, the portability of the technology, I think, has improved access for people with disabilities. So before, you used to have a, a special computer attached to a wheelchair with a special screen and such. And now that's been condensed to a smartphone. The technology is better paced for the person with disability. The challenge is reminding the faculty that they need to think about their course from a perspective that provides access to all. It means thinking about words that may be very complex, that may be mixed up in a screen reader and making sure there's a way to communicate them. I'm very proud to say our campus here at UMass Hill, just last year we won an award from Blackboard because of our access uh, policies. And our we have a very rigorous screening process for any course that goes online to make sure that it's accessible. The good news is there are a lot of resources out there that can help schools think about this. And there are tools they can use that they can run their courses through that'll flag access issues to improve people's access. Well, congratulations. It's wonderful that you're so forward thinking in that. Stephen, what does it mean to be an auditory learner? How does someone know if they are one? There's this sort of hierarchy of learning, right? So if you're looking at slides or you're looking at lecture notes, without the auditory component coming in, it's still possible to miss the important points. So auditory learning, it helps things to connect. So there's been studies, right? It helps things to connect in your brain. So when you just see it, you could just file it along. But if you see it and hear it, there's someone saying, pay attention to this. This is important. And if you don't remember it, you're not going to pass the exam. Ultimately, it's all about processing information right? So you process it visually, you can process it orally, and then you process by doing it. 
It's interesting how so many of us have been thrust into uh, doing everything online this past year. I have three children who have been attending school online. First of all, I'm thinking your phone lines must have been pretty busy a year ago with every teacher in the world suddenly having to switch to online. And uh, I'm curious what, what you were telling people a year ago versus now. So we have a large online portfolio. We have about five bachelor's degrees and about 10, 15 master's degrees, a large portfolio. But that's in one part of the university. So we still have this huge on-campus presence. On March 13th, we made the call and basically we were told, you need to move 2,500 courses online next week. Spring break. They need to all be online (laughs) when students return. And I remember pulling the team aside And I said, okay, we've got a tall order ahead of us. It's a good thing none of us were planning to do anything this spring break. We figured out a mechanism. You know, we have templates. We have batch loading. We have all these technology things we can use. But the biggest piece was coming up with the policies that would guide the process. In a crisis, I have a, a mode I refer to as bulldozer mode. And it's when you just put your head down and you push forward. And that's what I told the team. I said, you know what? We may make some mistakes. Some people may get angry. Just put your head down and push forward. We're going to make this happen, and then we'll clean things up after that. And that's basically what we did. We used the summer to start to implement more rigorous training programs and incentives and such and and fine-tune the technology. But that period over spring break was just bulldozer mode. It would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall in a lot of places during that time. But, I mean... Long before the pandemic started, there was definitely a trend towards more online education. I mean, the pandemic just thrust us into the future there, but uh, especially when it comes to post-high school and a lot of the master's and graduate degrees you're talking about, do you see that trend continuing? Have we sped it up? And kind of what other trends are you seeing in the online education space? So first of all, there's been this great group of schools that have been moving promoting online edu- quality online education, certainly since the 90s. Penn State, you've got Syracuse, you've got University of Central Florida, great schools in that mix. And we also had built some pretty profitable online programs, revenue that helps support the campus. Then all of a sudden, COVID hits, we flip the switch. Everybody is an expert in online education. And honestly, my biggest challenge is every faculty member and dean I talk to, well, we don't need your help. We don't have to go through training. We know how to do this already. And it's like, Mm, yeah, you know, it's really not as simple. I, yep, you've learned to do this. You've learned how to turn on a camera and talk to a microphone, right? But online education is really a lot more than that. So there's that challenge. There's the, the, the convincing people politely right. and nicely. Every, everyone's an expert now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. The other challenge is more from the competitive landscape is uh, schools that may never have gone online have suddenly done it. And some of them are going to keep doing it, particularly as we face this, uh, this demographic challenge. The number of high school students is dropping, fewer kids going into undergraduate programs, so there's a lot more competition for them. And now the online space has become more competitive because of that. In fact, I was on a phone call with uh, the folks from MIT this morning talking to edX about how do we increase the scope of our programs. And it's going to mean reaching out to broader audiences. It's going to mean doing micro-credentials like micro-bachelors, micro-masters. It's going to mean chunking up 14-week course and breaking that down into maybe eight weeks or maybe four weeks. It means being flexible. And so we are being flexible and we're looking at new opportunities just to stay a little bit ahead of the curve. 
Absolutely. Well, it sounds like there's a bit of a gold rush underway in uh, in online education, especially online higher education. So to close us out, Stephen, I'm curious if you are going to create an online learning program from scratch, from the ground up right now in, in 2021, where would you start and what key investments would you make? I would look at that working professional market. Look at the uh, career growth for the next 10 to 15, 20 years, right? What are the up and coming? So we're looking at life sciences, we're looking at information technology, data sciences, healthcare. There's my programs. And out of that, then I would start to look at the technology we have now and the, the facility with which people use technology. It's so different than it was 20 years ago. So we can bring in audio relatively easier. We, we can bring in data mapping and such. So I would have a nice team of instructional designers. We would come up with our menu of programs. We would find the faculty who have been innovating on their campuses, pull them together. We would build it out. And then we'd work like with partners like edX, for example, to really move it out on a broad scale. Really exciting. Dr. Stephen Tello, thanks for teaching us about distance learning during this distance interview. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Randy. Great to talk with you today. What an educational episode. My thanks to Dr. Arlene Bronzaft of Grow NYC and online educator Dr. Stephen Tello. On the next Powered by Audio, there's a lot more to sound at motor races than just engine noise. IndyCar driver Marcus Erickson explains how communications with his team keep him competitive and alive. We'll also listen to the roar of the crowd and other sports sounds with someone who mixes audio from Major League Baseball, the NFL, and other sports coverage. Speaking of audio, if you like what you heard, please give us a review and be sure to click the follow button to receive that next episode. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. Thank you for listening. 